By most accounts, the war in Yemen is brutal, lethal, nightmarish, and a living tragedy of the modern world. With the backing of Western military powers and weapons, the Saudi-led coalition has undertaken a relentless bombing and land campaign against the Iran-backed Houthi rebels since 2015. Britain, the US, and France may be complicit in war crimes in Yemen. That's according to a new United Nations report. Iran is also being implicated. The UN says the Saudi-led coalition's use of starvation as a tactic may also amount to a war crime. Human rights watchers have accused the Saudis of war crimes and a string of attacks against civilians. Just this last weekend, the International Red Cross said the Saudis had killed over 100 people in a single strike on a detention center. We were sleeping, and at around midnight, there were maybe three or four, maybe six strikes. They were targeting the jail. I really don't know how many bombs. There were a hundred of us on the ground floor and 150 on the first floor. But as the kinetic war rolls out IRL, the Yemeni people have also been casualty to a silent war, one that's online. On this week's episode, I sit down with Winona DeSomber, a threat intelligence researcher at Recorded Future, to talk about how cyber warfare and espionage has been a serious feature in the war in Yemen. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So, Winona, we hear a lot about the war in Yemen and the kinetic atrocities that go down between the rebels and the Saudi-backed government. I'm wondering, can you explain to me the little-known part of it, which is the cyber war? So when you're talking about the war in Yemen, it started again in 2015 when the Houthi rebels took control of Sana'a, which was the capital of Yemen or is the capital of Yemen, depending on who you ask at this point. With that actually came the takeover of Yemennet, which at the time was the only uh, internet service provider within the country itself. And it's been really interesting to see how the Houthi rebels have tried to legitimize themselves and also track how people are talking with each other on the internet because of this takeover. For example, the top-level domain for Yemen is .ye. Um, This would encompass any website that's primarily government-oriented, And one of the first things that we see the Houthi rebels doing now that they have control over the main ISP is changing all of the government sites in the .ye domain to reflect the now legitimate Houthi government. Uh, So you see things like the Ministry of uh, Finance, also some other ministries being altered online to reflect the Houthi regime. There's also some censorship going on. So we've seen some interesting setup of NetSweeper devices, which is a internet monitoring tool uh, being set up within that IP space, so to speak. On the other side, you have the Hadi regime now set up on the southern side of Yemen uh, in Aden, which is a port city. And because the Houthi rebels have actually shut off internet access in Aden multiple times through their control of Yemennet, the Hadi regime has set up their own ISP, their own internet service provider uh, called Adennet very fitting. And they're actually using a Saudi provider as well as multiple routers from Huawei to set up their 
own uh, internet service in the region. So it's interesting how all of these um, big players, not just the Hadi versus the Houthis, but also Saudi Arabia, Iran, and China even, are getting in on this civil war. And what are they doing exactly? Are they are they blocking things like Twitter and Facebook like we've seen in other conflict zones? So we do see some of that, but a majority of the activity we're seeing is just the shutdown of internet services in its entirety. So you see complete outages in the southern part of Yemen, as well as them trying to cut off some of the physical infrastructure. Um, so not just the service, but also the hardware attached. And why are they shutting it out? completely like why why are there outages fully this is mainly speculation because i'm just looking at the data itself right but uh, there's a couple reasons why a newly developing government would want to shut down uh, any sort of communications to the World Wide Web, so to speak, from uh, the previous regime, um, some of which is um, conflicting narratives. Others could be trying to make sure that their version of the truth gets more traffic than the old regimes. Is there also some sort of, I mean, I was reading about it and I saw that there was, you know, we've seen this also in the war in Ukraine recently, especially when you kind of look at modern wars and the way modern wars function with the internet. Because I don't think, you know, the West has ever gone to war in its homeland and doesn't realize what a modern war looks like, not only from a kinetic way, but also from a cybersecurity way. I mean, how does sort of the media aspect of this play into it in terms of denying and and allowing certain pieces of information out? Wow, that's a really good question. I mean, when you're talking about the internet writ large, especially in a war zone when <laughs> tactical operations may completely destroy whatever infrastructure is in certain cities. Civilians, again, the victims after a Saudi-led coalition airstrike in Yemen. Iranian-backed Houthi fighters say at least 31 people, including women and children, have died in an attack on their vehicles in the western province of Hadida. Although some Houthi sources say the number of dead is lower. Especially with... Um, drone strikes and and whatnot. Controlling how the populace feels, also controlling what the populace consumes in terms of media is important in a time of transition. And I think that the Houthi rebels really recognize this. That being said, uh, when it does come to government-controlled infrastructure, there's also going to be things like censorship devices. There's going to be things that come into play, like the fact that Yemenet is frankly old and there are certain vulnerabilities associated within key servers in Sana'a itself. So you see this old infrastructure being taken over. You also see censorship-related or, or monitoring-related devices being set up. And you see, in response, uh, some individuals setting up things like Tor, like VPNs, to get around or uh, circumvent those controls as well. So it's not just uh, the governments playing into the, the control of the media, but it's individuals within the country also trying to figure out what that ground truth is. And what about the actual, let's say, like the the snooping and the spying and surveilling of of the domestic population? Is this something that the Houthis are doing as well? I do not have the data to say either way, unfortunately. But uh, what I can say is there are quite a few players in the region. There's not just um, the two states. There's also, you know, multiple um, countries that have a more 
uh, developed cyber capability as well as uh, general criminal activity. So you still see malware actually originating from Yemen. People are still uploading malware samples from, from the region, uh, a lot of which are actually Android malware. So that's kind of an interesting finding. And it makes sense too, right? Because you're probably not going to have as many static computers in a war zone, um, but most people do have for, uh, phones. And most people probably don't have iPhones is the other thing. It's more so they'll have, they'll have the Androids because they're much more accessible. Yeah, absolutely. And they also tend to be far more attackable. Yes, um, I will say that as well. There's definitely um, some spyware that we've seen as well as just some generic adware that people download. It's it's the internet, right? It's, it's, it's not going away, even in a war zone. Uh, and there are multiple players, not just from nation state, but also criminal that are going to take advantage of that opportunity. Now, you mentioned China and Huawei. One thing we know, at least geopolitically, China is very interested in Africa, and they're very interested in a lot of countries that could, you know, create the sort of the every all all roads lead to China. Now, what is China's interest in Yemen, and how has it been deploying its cyber infrastructure in the country? So, when we're talking about China and their interest in the region, you have to think kind of at a super high level, very strategically. Uh, for one. China is very much interested in general regional stability, um, not just at home um, with their multiple initiatives, but also abroad. So when we're talking about keeping stability in the region, there's, there's two factors to that. One is from a political standpoint, China is usually all about maintaining sovereignty or, or, or respecting other countries' sovereignty. And so they are usually, um, or in this case, they are very supportive of, of the Hadi regime. Uh, from an economic standpoint, Yemen is right next to the Bab al-Mandeb Strait, which is a key chokehold for China's initiative, um, more specifically the One Belt, One Road, or the BRA, the Belt and Road Initiative. This is China's Belt and Road Initiative, the most ambitious infrastructure project in modern history that's designed to reroute global trade. And it's how China plans to become the world's next superpower. This strait allows them to conduct uh, smooth transport and shipping into the wider uh, Middle Eastern and African regions. So having stability in that area, in Yemen specifically, would be greatly beneficial to them, both from a political and also an economic standpoint. And they're obviously interested in getting their internet infrastructure set up there. Well, business is business, right? And if the Hadi regime is going to go to China and ask them to invest in their country, it fits well with the BRI and it also fits well with their economic goals. So, you know, the DOJ has definitely indicted a bunch of Iranian hackers before. They've gone after everything. They've been moderately successful. Obviously, the Iranians are backing the Houthi rebels right now. I mean, if the Houthis are doing this to the internet when they take over, you have to think that there's there's some support from Iran. How do Iranian hackers play into this conflict? Unfortunately, I, I don't have the data to talk about uh, Iranian hackers. But what I will say is that we know that Iranian hackers, um, talking about the big APTs like APT33, 35, Muddy Water, they are consistently and um, rapidly growing and scaling their, their command and control infrastructure. So you do see them um, not just uh, growing these um, 
numbers of servers that they have control over, but also targeting specific Saudi Arabian companies and, and organizations. So it's not just about um, Yemen for, for the Iranians. It's also making sure that even in a proxy war, they're still attacking uh, <laughs> the main player that they're interested in, right, which is Saudi Arabia. So, you know, some of the war in Yemen, some of the Iranian campaigns against Saudi Arabia are probably likely linked in some ways. I can't say that for sure, but I can say that when it comes to geopolitics, cyber plays an important part. And if targeting Saudi organizations is beneficial to Iran, then they will do so. I mean, how would you gauge? Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Sort of the strength of Iranian hacking capabilities, is it... Because I've heard everything from from people from NSA say they're no good, to people saying they're really good, to people saying they're okay. I mean, they must be doing something right. Yeah. Um, so I think my favorite answer to gauging cyber capabilities is it depends, but I could definitely tell you a little bit more about them in specificity, right? So based off of research that we've done in the past, we can say that Iran uh, Iran's government has a very detailed and interesting relationship with various cybersecurity contractors within their region. Well, after President Trump reimposed economic sanctions on Iran last month, Iranian state-backed hackers tried to break into the emails of U.S. officials. So you have uh, the government contracting out work to their private sector, and these private sector individuals are the ones that are usually going and conducting these operations. And when that occurs, they do everything from creating custom malware to really using tools that are already openly available. So it's really fascinating in some regards to see them uh, use commodity malware, so to speak. So when I'm talking about the command and control infrastructure that we've seen them put up, about 1,200 command and control servers, Many of them are actually command and control servers used for things like NJRAT, which is incredibly popular on underground forums. And in fact, you can find it readily available on the open web for free. And they're also using things that are a little bit more proprietary, uh, which suggests that they frequent criminal underground forums to pull out effective malware to use against these Saudi organizations. That's actually something I've read. I know that they had an institute that they were running everything out of. Because that's what the DOJ, the charges that came out a few, I want to say a few months ago, were, it was just this like academic institution, but they'd been going after everyone all over the West, especially going after IP specifically. What would they do with that? So I think you're referring to the Nasser Institute. Again, I can't speculate on what the Nasser Institute does with the IP or or how they uh, would benefit from it. But what I can say is that is one of the best examples of a contractor-to-government relationship. There's been multiple reports of their contractors and also different personas uh, and technical indicators, too, 
that defines a relationship between them and a security company called the Kevash Security Group. So between that relationship, you actually see historic connections between uh, big threat groups like APT33, APT35, and Muddy Water. So the Houthis been said to have been mining cryptocurrency. Do you think that's true? So based off of the research that we've done, we have seen uh, large numbers of CoinHive crypto miners on the Yemen net ISP. Now, remember, this is the ISP now owned by the Houthi rebels. If they were controlling it, it would be an excellent way to generate revenue for the regime, um, especially one that's just starting out and has now access to this massive set of computers for this internet service provider. However, because we can't link the coin miners to the government specifically, we can't, we can't say for sure maybe about medium confidence in that. Uh, there's also multiple other things that could be happening. Again, going back to the cyber criminal route, there could be individuals who have discovered, oh, Yemenet, like I said previously, has vulnerabilities that can be exploited. And so by taking advantage of those vulnerabilities, individuals from really anywhere could have also installed these crypto miners. Really what I like about this story of the war in Yemen and sort of the cyber components of it is it just sort of speaks to the modern age of warfare. Because I think for us in the West, we kind of lose that. We don't understand it because we're never at war. You know, our, our, our homes are never at war. But in these places, you know, if you, if you look at the war in Ukraine, you saw an entire power grid taken out because of a kinetic war. And it's sort of just, it just seems to me, it's like almost this glimpse into the future of what it would be like if, if we had a massive conflict. And it's something to kind of keep in mind when going forward, when we think about the way conflict carries out in the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. And even on the flip side, I find that many individuals, when thinking about cyber attacks or cyber threats, don't consider it outside of the realm of cyber itself. Cybersecurity doesn't operate in a vacuum. It's inevitably entrenched in things like geopolitics, in physical infrastructure, and in the way that we're interconnected as societies. Well, thank you for being on the podcast, Winona. It's my pleasure. So one story this week for this roundup I know Lorenzo was, was very almost shocked by it when he was telling me about it. But Google announced that they had found something on iPhones being hacked off malicious websites. Yeah, I love this Google Apple beef. It's incredible. So Google has a team called Project Zero that's dedicated to finding zero days anywhere on the Internet, regardless of whether it's Google software. So they have this dude named Ian Beer and a few other people who are incredible iOS hackers. And they found that thousands of phones per week were getting indiscriminately hacked uh, just by visiting a website, which kind of upends everything we thought we knew about iOS malware. Uh, we know that iOS malware is really expensive. It costs like, you know, two or three million dollars for a zero day. Apple patches them quickly. Um, and then, you know, it's really hard to get anything that is sort of remote, no touch. So like a text message that is silent, like a silent way of hacking it, one that doesn't show the person that they're getting hacked. But what Google found was that just if you visited this website, you got hacked. So it's indiscriminate hacking. It's not targeted. It is 
deployed like super widely in a way that you'd think would get burned quickly. And uh, it, it just it just upends everything we thought we knew. So it came out over the weekend that we believe that it was China targeting the Uyghur population, but we don't know for sure. Also, it's just Google taking shots at Apple, which is really interesting. Now, okay, there's a great story we also have on deepfakes and celebrities. Play a clip. This haiku is called Machines Are People Too. The machines can feel data flowing through their veins, just like us cyborgs we were promised flying cars uh yeah so we've been reporting on deepfakes for a really long time uh we had this author who reached out to us who was like hey i wrote these uh book of far future dystopian haikus so yeah poetry book very exciting uh and he was like i wanted to make deepfakes to promote uh this like get celebrities to promote my book and he's like, but I don't know how to do that. So he went on the app Cameo, paid like 50 bucks to a bunch of D-list celebrities and made them read haikus, uh, which is not hacking, but it feels like very dystopian and hacking adjacent. There's like Riff Raff and Gilbert Gottfried and um, Andy Milanakis and a couple other like super D-list, like lost celebrities, Heidi Montag of... Uh, I believe Laguna Beach fame, just like reading these really dystopian futuristic haikus. So he called them DIY deepfakes. I think is kind of funny. Honestly, how dare you say that Riff Raff is a D celebrity? Dude, he has a killer mullet still. He's he, he's got a couple killer tracks. I'm gonna be honest with you. I went and listened to them. They're not killer. <laughs> yeah, gotta say. <laughs> okay, Jason, what's the latest in iPhone right to repair? Yeah, I know that we're trying to keep this short, so I will keep it short, although I could talk about this for an hour. Uh, Apple finally is going to sell iPhone parts to repair shops, uh, whether or not they're Apple certified. So this means that uh, finally repair shops will be able to buy screens and cameras and uh, batteries and whatnot from Apple directly. This is a huge deal because most independent repair shops buy parts you know, from third parties, uh, aftermarket, counterfeit, sometimes uh, refurbished. And Apple's been cracking down on that. We've got all these cases of Apple, like sending cease and desists and suing people for importing, uh, you know, parts that are not authorized. And now Apple's going to start selling them. Uh, That's good news, except for Apple is still only going to sell to certain people. Uh, You need to sort of like pass a test to to get these parts. Uh, They're going to sell them at some price that we don't know that's probably going to be more expensive than an aftermarket part they are also uh only selling specific parts so they're selling like screens batteries cameras but they're not selling like charging ports so if like your charging port breaks like they're not going to allow people to fix that so this is not true right to repair but it is progress and now on to Bang Bros, a company of which I have no idea who never, they are. Never, ever heard I've of them. I've never heard of them myself, but apparently they bought a huge porn doxing forum? Yeah, so uh, Porn WikiLeaks, I believe it was called, was a website dedicated to finding the real identities of women who acted in porn videos. So it's like, I don't know, think of a porn name. Go. Nina Hartley. Yeah, so it'd be like <laughs> Nina Hartley, real name, like 
Janet whatever Williams, the hell, yeah. like from Virginia. Here's her phone number. Here's her Facebook. And then people would harass her. Obviously, like a lot of people act in porn under like it, that's, stage names. That's extremely like, what the fuck, man? It's so creepy. So, so creepy. And so Bang Bros, uh, paragons of feminism and uh, social justice, bought this c- company, bought the entire website, got its servers and its hard drives and literally lit them on fire. That's fantastic. It's great. It's just guess, a fun story. You gotta, you gotta wonder. I mean, you gotta give credit to a company called Bang Bros doing something for the public good. Yes, Bang Bros of Bang Bus fame. Haven't yeah. heard of that either, but I mean, <laughs> from the article, I learned it. <laughs> yeah, I only, I, it, I only went I, once. I went to Vice.com to figure out this. I, I found a lot out about the porn industry. Anyway, uh, a spreadsheet with the worst twenty-five passwords was actually malware. Yeah, so I guess every year there's like a list of passwords that goes around and it's like don't use password one, two, three, four, five, don't use password password, don't use password princess or werewolf or all these like, you know, very commonly used passwords. And so some uh some hackers decided to make one of these lists in an Excel document, send it around to people and say, Hey, don't use these passwords. And embedded in the Excel file was malware that allowed them to take over their computer. Very sneaky. It's sick. Sneaky, sneaky. And that's the roundup. The roundup. This week's episode was edited and recorded by Andrew Bursick, produced and hosted by me, Ben Maku. You'll be hearing from us next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.